guys play on what is happening with the London market and all these commodity markets? Because the new home sales market obviously is hugely capacity constrained at the moment. We were talking about this yesterday. But existing home sales may be less so. So maybe you want to buy an existing home rather than a new home, and you actually get better value for it as a result of what's happening with the, with the construction market right now. Yeah, it's interesting, though, to see that uh, you have to wonder if it's a supply constraint that's also leading uh, to yep. uh, weaker existing home sales. Also, I have to say, anecdotally, like, I mean, the Brooklyn market is literally on fire. I mean, prices are actually coming up in some areas. There is inventory piling on. I mean, literally, apartments or existing home sales are going in, like, three days sometimes, 30 days in the apartment complex that I now live in. I mean, it's... It's definitely, and that's Brooklyn. So imagine the area uh, that's sort of outdoors where you get even more space. Forget about it. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting to see that, that, therefore, given what you just said, the number just slipping a little bit below yeah, expectations. Maybe yeah. we are starting. Start, I, these are still really high numbers. Yeah, exactly. I think if you look at the historic chart, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, we missed a little bit, but these are super, super high numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see whether the market does come down, whereas you say, even even in the existing home market, we are supply limited. The, the, the new home market, absolutely incredible what's happening in terms of prices there. We were talking about the fact that maybe um, some some construction companies are having to basically say, you know what, we can't take your order. Anyway, let's get back to the markets. Let's talk about what a, what a wild week it has been. Alex was alluding to it uh, at the top today. A little bit of stabilization. Feels a little calmer today, Abigail Doodle. It is a bit calmer today, uh, Guy. A wild week indeed, those three down days, two up days. Now those super, super strong PMI numbers dented the gains on the day slightly, but nonetheless, all's well that ends well. If you take a look at the S&P 500 heading to a weekly gain, the NASDAQ 100, its first weekly gain in five weeks. So this is impressive. The bulls protect stepping back up those dip buyers, small cap participating as well. And we did have yields down more solidly earlier, but now we actually have a little bit of a reversal. Those PMI uh, numbers sending bonds down. So now you have yields ever so slightly higher. But the sentiment, it seems to be sticking with uh, stocks as we do, again, have those dip buyers out. Now, the really wild ride, if you take a look at Bitcoin over the last seven days, we are going to see Bitcoin slid. Now, this is that 30% drop, 30% gain. When you have assets trading so wildly, like as I was mentioning earlier this week, the idea of catching a falling knife, sometimes it's hard to forget that the asset class is overall still down. And Alex, that is the case. Over the last seven days, you have Bitcoin down 24% despite the recent stabilization. All right, Abigail, thanks a lot. It's been quite a week uh, for those Bitcoin holders. Abigail Doolittle from Bloomberg. All right, and Taxman Cummins, the U.S. proposing a global minimum corporate tax rate that's getting some enthusiastic reception uh, over in Europe. You have Germany's finance minister, Olaf Scholz, called this big progress. And says the deal could happen by summer. They're looking at 15% now. Uh, joining us now with the latest is Laura Davidson, a Bloomberg tax reporter. Laura, it almost seemed like the most important thing we learned from this is that President Biden is very much willing to negotiate when it comes to taxes. Yeah, so this was a, a reversal from where we were in these talks, you know, just a year ago under Trump. Mnuchin has walked away. Uh, and then once Biden became president, Yellen came and said, yes, we want to get a deal. We want to end this race to the bottom on, on corporate tax rates. You have countries competing with each other and, uh, you know, pulling, uh, you know, offering really low tax rates um, and, and, also, and kind of creating this weird arbitrage system where, where corporations could dash intellectual property and, uh, and, and kind of get a, a very good deal uh, kind of at the expense of, uh, of um, countries and their, and their budgets worldwide. So this is a, a indicating significant progress. The U.S. has thrown out, originally thrown out a 21% rate. You're now saying, you know, 15% could be a, a workable solution. And this is really close to what the 12.5% rate that had been discussed previously. So they are honing in on a deal. Laura, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, as Alex says, uh, receiving fairly positive responses here in Europe. Laura Davidson, Bloomberg Tax reporter. Apple CEO Tim Cook expected to take the stand today uh, in the company's battle with Epic Games over the App Store. Bloomberg Technology anchor Emily Chang outside the courthouse in Oakland, California. Emily, how is the case going for Apple? What does Cook need to say today to make it work for the company? Hi guys, so the courthouse has just opened. We're expecting Tim Cook to be on the stand for about three hours today, one hour with Apple's team, two hours with Epic's lawyers for cross-examination. And this is the first time that we've seen Tim Cook 
testify in a court setting like this. For Apple, we have, of course, even testified before Congress a couple of times. He's always come off fairly polished, um, fairly refined, and we know that he's been practicing with his team for hours going into this. He's preparing for the unexpected, preparing for that off-the-wall question uh, that he might get by Epic's lawyers, who have a high bar today, which is to try to prove that Apple is a monopoly with respect to the App Store, that the way they run the App Store is unlawful and anti-competitive, as is that 30% cut. Uh, so I think what we're going to hear Tim Cook talk about, he often comes at this from a values perspective. He will talk about how the App Store is an economic engine, uh, how it benefits consumers in terms of the way they run it, in terms of privacy and security. And we're going to see him double down on all of that. Um, keep in mind that Epic CEO Tim Sweeney will be here as well. He's been here at the front of the courtroom every day. And on Epic's team, you have the same lawyer that represented Netscape back in 2001 in its case against Microsoft. And they feel very strongly that the parallel is the same, that in that case, Microsoft was found to be anti-competitive with respect to the browser. In this case, Apple is anti-competitive with respect to the App Store. So we're going to have to see. We're waiting for Tim Cook and Tim Sweeney. They should both be here uh, within the next hour. And Tim Cook takes the stand about an hour from now. Really looking forward to that. Also, I'm like surprisingly excited to see someone on location. So Emily, thank you. We appreciate it, Bloomberg. Uh, Emily Chang joining us there. All right, coming up, we're going to have more on our top stories, plus those building inflationary pressures, Fed reaction function with Ellen Zender, Morgan Stanley Chief, U.S. economist. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg's market update is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. forward. We believe the future of energy is lower carbon, and to get there, the world needs to reduce global emissions. At Chevron, we're taking action, tying our executives' pay to lowering the carbon emissions intensity of our operations. It's tempting to see how far we've come, but it's only human to know how far we have to go. we often don't recognize it. Interactive Brokers founder Thomas Petterfee brought the future to the floor of the American Stock Exchange in 1983. The company had fabricated Wall Street's first mobile computer, and it changed finance forever. Today, Interactive Brokers continues to push finance forward by building the latest technology you need to increase your success. Move your account to Interactive Brokers. Memorial Day sale on the new Sleep Number 360 SmartVet. It's the most comfortable, duly adjustable, foot warming, temperature balancing, proven quality night sleep we've ever made. And now save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Special Edition SmartVet plus free premium delivery with Banner Base. Ends Monday. Live from New York, I'm Alex Seals, Guy Johnson over in London. This is Bloomberg Market. So one company that reported today, Deer, they upgraded their product construction and farming equipment. What's also interesting is what they say about the supply chains, though. They do say on the call that's going on right now, the semi uh, shortage is going to be a significant risk for the remainder of this year. You can see what's happened to the stock as the conference call got underway, Guy. Big theme when it comes to earnings for these industrials. Yeah, my takeaway from there, though, is that it has pricing power, and it has significant pricing power. I think that's really interesting, Alex, 
because that takes us to the PMI data we had today, as Mike was pointing out a little bit earlier on. Uh, yes, there's an input cost issue, but there's also a reflection in this number. The companies do have output cost pricing power, uh, and that certainly has been reflected in the PMI. But my real takeaway from the PMI was that services number, 70.1. We have never seen a number like that. Ellen Zetner, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist, joining us now to give us her reaction. What are your thoughts on that number, Ellen? So I think, you know, the, the services side uh, of the, the UK and of Europe, you know, is going to be following behind the services side of the US where we saw a reopening earlier and a lot of that pent up demand come through and that squeeze with price pressures coming out of that. Uh, and so look, it reflects rising sentiment, rising activity, um, but demand of course always picks up. Uh, and especially when you've had pent-up demand build over more than a year's time, um, it, it, that can come through immediately, but it takes time to open up capacity to meet all of that demand. And so very similar price pressures in Europe as to what we've been seeing in the U.S. Um, and it's probably going to continue for longer than expected. So, Ellen, for the data here in the U.S., well, you have new orders at a record and pricing at a record. So do the new orders stay strong enough to be able to pass on some kind of price increases to offset those rising input costs. Yeah, I think they do. And there's, there's another element of the, the being able to pass on uh, the prices to the end user as well here. That is that U.S. households have been very price intolerant for quite some time, just very sluggish income growth, a very sluggish recovery in the last cycle. And this time it's very different with excess savings uh, of more than $2 trillion. A trillion of that sits in cash among the middle to lower income groups. Uh, and we've got jobs that are coming back, not as strongly as we'd like so far, but labor income is rising. And so we are very price tolerant right now. We are just focused on let me catch up on all the things I missed out on and that is the perfect opportunity for businesses to pass on the cost rather than uh, eat it on the margin. Um, the U.S. Services PMI at 70.1, um, how does the Fed's going to think about this? Do you think the Fed is going to be comfortable with the data that are coming in at the moment? Generally, the data are still pretty strong. Uh, I know the surprise index is starting to fade a little bit right now. But in terms of your estimates as to how the Fed is going to be absorbing this, this week felt different to me. I started to hear Fed speakers talking about a taper. What is your timeline for that happening now? Yeah, so I think what we should do is continue to see them take these baby steps toward finally getting forward guidance on when tapering might actually begin. So far, what we've had is very tiny steps toward talking about it, right? Remember earlier this year it was, we shouldn't even be talking about talking about it. Um, and now they're talking about talking about it. So we learned even from uh, the minutes from the April FOMC meeting this week uh, that at that time, they were already, the voices were already starting to grow that look, things are going well. There's no longer considerable downside risk. There's just downside risk from, from COVID. Uh, and things are better enough that perhaps over the next several meetings, which means over the summer, they should start talking about it. Uh, and so that means that we think that certainly by the September meeting, we'll get that formal forward guidance that balance sheet tapering could be coming. So these are still baby steps. And right? sometimes the market assumes it suddenly happen quickly at the Fed. It takes a long time to get consensus, but this is a step in the right direction. But even the baby steps do feel like to have an impact on those inflation expectations. I mean, all the break-evens rolled over at uh, the FOMC minutes. And so I'm wondering how you make that connection. It seems like investors are now like, the Fed's going to be handle it. We're not going to see out of control inflation, yet the underlying data day-to-day -day is still looking at these huge price increases and issues with supply chains. So I'm wondering, like, as an investor, as an economist, how do you have to look at those two things? Yeah, so I think that um, if in your uh, investing mindset the Fed matters to you, then you need to wake up every morning and put on your Fed goggles and look through their lens at the data. And so they're going to be looking at what are the obvious pieces of inflation that are rising that are mobility sensitive, that look very obviously something that is COVID related. Uh, and then with the supply disruptions, I do uh, believe in the minutes more than we're becoming concerned that that would last for longer. But you're still going to have this assumption that eventually those supply disruptions uh, are solved. Um, and that the, the production picks up again. Um, they're mindful, right? They're watchful, and markets should be watchful, meaning you should have some amount of risk premium built in. 
um, that some of this is not completely transient. Um, but right now, it's just the, the data is so distorted, you can't take it too far in terms of extrapolating forward of what these data prints right now mean for future inflation. So I actually think the markets have gone a little too far or, or had uh, up until this week of assuming that inflation was just going to be runaway. I'm trying to picture what Fed that goggles. It'd be super nerdy. Yeah. Super nerdy. Yeah, it makes an economist who's already a nerd look a little yeah. bit more nerdy. It can be tough. How would you care? That's a tough look to, to pull off, particularly uh, on a Friday. Um, Ellen, another thing that's happened this week is that we've been, we've been going back and forth in terms of what we're going to see in terms of infrastructure, what kind of size that package is going to look like, how it's going to be distributed, what that ultimately means for the package that comes after that from the Biden administration, the families package. What is your current thinking? What kind of numbers are you plugging into your models in terms of what we're going to get from the federal government? So I think first and foremost, we're going to get bigger deficits. Um, this thing is not going to be paid for. Uh, there are um, impediments to going too far with the tax side of it, so in that American Families Plan. So we think you can probably raise about 800 to 900 billion in tax revenues from that, and that's over the 10-year budget window. Um, and that doesn't offset how much of the infrastructure side from the American Jobs Plan that we think will be coming through. I think a lot of that two trillion, roughly two trillion dollar ask can get passed. Um, the big arguments, of course, will be what's infrastructure and what's not, but we've been having these arguments since the 1930s over exactly what is the definition of infrastructure. Uh, but infrastructure carries very large economic multipliers, and that will dwarf uh, any sort of perceived drag from higher tax revenues. And so in an economic forecast, it's actually a net positive um, starting next year if you're assuming the, the underlying parts are passed that we're assuming two trillion on infrastructure, eight to nine hundred billion on tax revenues. Bail, we don't have a ton of time, but higher higher corporate taxes, good or bad? Higher corporate taxes, well I'm gonna take the economist approach. <laughs> higher corporate taxes with a uh, that don't go too far but with a larger base can be quite positive. It can it can encourage capital deepening. Companies have to make up that uh, in some other way. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, Ellen, thanks a lot. We truly appreciate it. Uh, you have economist goggles and Fed goggles. It all looks pretty good. Um, okay, some uh, breaking news for you here. So according to the block, uh, crypto exchange FTX is going to raise up to $1 million, uh, at a $20 billion valuation. We've seen some of these exchanges go public. They all got uh, hurt with some operational issues. And on Tuesday, when you saw the Bitcoin sell off, but it looks like another crypto exchange FTX will raise up to $1 billion at a $20 billion uh, valuation. All right, coming up, bullish. On Europe, we're going to take a look at record inflows in one ETF that really tells the story of the week. How much more juice is there? This is Bloomberg. Hey, uh, hey, everybody. I'm just, uh, just, uh, breaking in here real quick to, uh, just make a few points um, well yeah you've been hearing Bloomberg and their advice on the market and everything I'm still promoting my uh, digital currency system which would stop inflation worldwide and I know I gave a sort of a deadline for that to be at 60 days from now like 55 days from when I mentioned it but but still, it's a good idea. I mean, if you can track every dollar and down to the penny, penny, you can you can control, you can keep inflation from occurring and keep all the world currencies valuation where where they are. And um, and so that that's basically the idea. So people like my dad can preserve their wealth and 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 everything so I don't understand what what is wrong with it but I mentioned I mentioned a few things about it but I don't know I guess I guess people aren't aren't that interested I haven't heard that much about it so I guess 
the only reason people wouldn't want certain transactions to be tracked would, would be because of the legality of it but if the legality of a few of some things can be allowed particularly in sort of semi-approved black markets then it shouldn't be a problem to to use purely digital currency so that's just you know in terms of like drugs sex stuff like that i don't see why that seemed to be the, that seems to me to be the reason you wouldn't you couldn't get into a purely digital economy because like i said i could anybody could get a a, a really good printer or a special printer and set up you know a printing press and and that's what i think is happening just people all over the world are printing currency by themselves and nobody knows what currency is real what is fake that's what i think but maybe i'm wrong i don't know has flowed in during the past five days alone and more than half of that came in yesterday so you know, it's clear that people are willing to move into europe with their stock investments and this jp morgan fund has been a beneficiary of that shift yeah, and Dave, it's interesting because, you know, this week in the market, it was about Bitcoin and the, the trades off of that. That's what really uh, shook up the markets. Interesting, we got a headline that China is reiterating its calls for a crackdown on Bitcoin mining and trading. Bitcoin taking another leg lower. Now you have the Nasdaq 100 also taking a leg lower while the dollar kind of punches higher. So I wonder if we kind of fade this rally. And I wonder what the correlation between Bitcoin and Europe is. We kind of know what it's like for it with tech here. Yeah, probably a bit less of a correlation there, Alex, because... You know, if you look at the makeup uh, specifically of this uh, ETF, you see it's a lot more value-oriented. You see financial companies, industrial companies, healthcare, consumer staples, food, beverage, tobacco, and the technology companies and communications companies, which are really the lion's share of, say, the S&P 500, they just don't have a similar weight. So it's a much different makeup of Europe relative to the U.S. and it's reflected in this J.P. Morgan ETF. And so you figure less affected by changes in the really risky investments like Bitcoin. Uh, great point. Dave, thanks a lot. Super appreciate it. Super great Wilson joining us there. All right, coming up, are we going to see the return of the big leveraged buyouts? We're going to break it down with Goldman's Global Head of Acquisition Finance, Christina Minnis. That's coming up next. Don't miss that conversation. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> ETF Fridays, sponsored by Invesco. Let's invest in greater possibilities together. Invesco Distributors Incorporated. Entitled to compensation. Active 
been using Prozada for about five or six months now. Health is very important to myself and to my family. It was just not a vitamin that could cover all the bases. And then I started seeing the commercials for Persona. And they prescribe everything for what you need. I hear a doorbell ring, and there's my nice little box. Everything's personalized, it's easy. The sleep that I'm getting is the best sleep I've had in 10 years. Persona has helped me get my life back on track. Learn what your body needs at personanutrition.com. That commercial is so weird because, you know, she's she's at her dad's house and she doesn't own any of it. <laughs> that reminds me of my brother. He doesn't own it. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking like it's a really it's a really uh everybody wants to paint like a narrative of like the way they want it to be, not the way it is. You know what I mean? That's just that's just what I think. Than any other bank, including JP Morgan, since the beginning part of the year. 
And how about the scrutiny around lending at the moment, Christina? Obviously, you and I have talked a lot about the sort of the risks that are posed to deals, whether it's through regulatory risk, whether it's through activism, and just what that does to, to closing certainty and indeed duration that you see in deals. We now have a new administration. How is that changing that risk and that appetite to lend on deals? I say we maintain about the current uh, our current appetite is as robust as it was even in 2020 when we actually had to step up and support many clients through a very very difficult period. I think going forward, we don't see any great changes in the regulatory environment, and we've been able to operate very efficiently and fluidly with our clients to make sure we're delivering solutions for them. You know, even in periods of volatility, uh, like we saw in 2020. And even in periods of um, you know robust you know the credit markets like, like we're living in today, so I'm not actually concerned Ed or Alex about any changes to the environment. And I'm going to ask. We saw so much money pouring into the financial system over the last sort of 18 months, and obviously a lot of that in the form of deposits now is sitting in the banks. One way to get that money out is through lending, which presumably increases the competition around things like acquisition financing and indeed leverage lending. How do you sort of play into that? And particularly, I guess, what does that mean for this crop of new lenders, direct lenders, shadow banks, whatever you want to call them, that was such a potent force in the market last year? Yeah, actually, I don't see the direct lenders um, pulling back at all. In fact, I see them being a very important force, and we partner with many of them going forward. It, yes, it's an extremely competitive environment, and many, many banks are obviously proactively growing their acquisition finance. Okay, uh, I don't know what this lady is talking about, but she's just giving me a bad vibe. I don't know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's paranoia, who knows. But let's see what MicroStrategy CEO on Bitcoin's impact on gold, CNBC, and Bitcoin, no, that's not the price. <laughs> Bitcoin, yeah, metrics. They're, they're, let's see what. More Bitcoin. 229 coins this week, 271 last week. Both at average prices that are well above where it's currently trading. I realize in its entirety, your balance sheet has sizable unrealized gains over the past year plus. Uh, but how do you ascribe value? How do you determine the price at which you do buy more Bitcoin? You know, when I was buying Bitcoin at 9,500, I did it with anxiety, thinking someone's going to figure out that they should buy this stuff and no one will sell it to me. And my opinion's always been, who are these people selling this to me? So when banks say uh, we're going to rotate out of it, I think that's good because the other day, $13 billion worth of Bitcoin got bought. Someone needed to sell it for somebody to buy it. Bitcoin's up 346% this year. Gold's up 8% this year. Gold's up 2% a year for a decade. Bitcoin's up 135% a year for a decade. Gold's Yeah, I think Bitcoin is the next gold, really. And other people have agreed with me because it's it's not exactly the U.S. dollar, but it's it it you know it's got its own market and it's a pretty strong market. So, um, I guess. I guess I would say that, uh, anyway, sometimes I think of Bitcoin as me and my dad, because Bit suggests two people, and if anybody's investing in what I'm doing, it's my dad, and vice versa, so it just, but still, uh, still, you know, you, you have to pull out, pull out of investments if it, if they're, for a, maybe for a while to let let the market or let people do what they're going to do before you go back into that to, to whatever situation it is so I'm, I'm just going to try to hang around my hang around my house for a while and and we'll see you know I mean but when some when like the stuff that happened at this last place was just crazy and like why do I need to what was the point of it you know who cares what they think for your company I think they're non-issues because when when you have an inflationary environment money decomposes like a currency which is the medium of exchange 
and then and then store of value, which is the, the asset, which is the store of value. Uh, Bitcoin is an asset. It's, it's regulated as an asset, taxed as an asset, designated as, as an asset. The governments, uh, you know, said nothing anywhere in the world. In China, in Iran, in Europe, in the U.S., people are holding this as assets. I think that the banks, uh, their view is they don't want you to challenge a currency like the U.S. dollar, and they want you to pay taxes when you transfer your assets. So for the Treasury Department to say, you know, if you transfer more than $10,000 of Bitcoin, and oh, by the way, you've got to pay taxes when you transfer or sell it, that's a totally non-event because that's been the status quo with every asset in the country forever. This is just legitimizing Bitcoin as the apex asset, the best one. And I think it's good for the industry. Is there a price at which that you would actually realize some of those unrealized gains in Bitcoin for your company? You know, my view, and I've said it, is, is Bitcoin is the apex property of the human race. If I had a billion dollars and I buy a building in New York City, I can't move it. If I buy a billion dollars of Apple stock, it has no tangible value outside of the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. I can't move it. I can't move sovereign debt around. Bitcoin, if you own a billion dollars of Bitcoin, it's available to trade in any currency, on any exchange, anywhere in the world. I can move it to a million different counterparties, and I can take personal custody. And that makes it the highest form of property rights and Bitcoin, I guess it's saying it's at 36,957. Yeah, I think that's the price. Um, um, so the point is, is that markets are moving and these micro environments where they think they want to decide everything and make make bring pull everything into just one one location and make make some big you know put out their narrative is not that's not that doesn't help me often and maybe maybe I should invest where in what I think is valuable which is just my home investing stuff my internet stuff not not like these manual labor jobs where they're just going to try to pull a bunch of stunts and stuff. I mean, I almost was a broker, an investment broker, and that's what I would have been if it wasn't for my mom. And she said, no one will buy, no one's going to invest with you. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I, I trusted her at that time. But now I realize she she wasn't acting in my best interest. Enemy, because I agree with them, it is. The problem is, might be the enemy to some, but to central banks, inflation may be the answer. Think about all the asset prices and what they do during inflating times and what it does to debt. Not the least of which is how it affects the reserve currency status of the U.S. We all see Janet Yellen try to get a m minimum global corporate tax. Why do you think countries even listen to us on this issue? Because we're the reserve currency. All that figures in. Just remember, accepting Bitcoin isn't necessarily the same as a rubber stamp of long-term approval. But I'm not here to tell you whether Bitcoin's here to stay or not, or whether it's going to work in the grand scheme of things. What I'm here to tell you is, is that it's a good technical commodity slash coin crypto to trade. It really is. And anybody can say, like, if their dad or their mom is an investor, and this son or daughter is going out there finding opportunities, that that's like a symbolic of Bitcoin. So you could make those investments in Bitcoin based on that situation. So, but you know, businesses may not be ready for that. Not every not every one of these businesses is, is gonna respect that and if they don't respect it then we shouldn't be involved with them most here's the all-time high of bitcoin here's something about charts the reason charts work so well is because human behavior is repetitive and predictable whether it's back in the egyptian time or 10 minutes ago 
Humans usually react in predictable, repetitive ways. Look at this chart line. Here's the all-time high on mid-April, 63,410. 34 days from there was this week, and the low of 38,336. Exactly 34 days from then. So you want to always count from key tops and lows, not to mention all the areas right here around 37, 38,000. If I look at this chart real quickly and give you a quick down and dirty, I'd say it's going to hold this area, give it some room, put a sell stop right around 36.5. Mike, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much uh, for the cheat sheet there. Two big interviews coming up on Tech Check, including an exclusive with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, plus Snap CEO Evan Spiegel. And that all starts at the top of the hour. We'll be right back. By the way, I've changed the name of my podcast to Real Talk for a bunch of reasons. So, just search for Real Talk, Real Talk, semicolon, David M. Cash. I think that's what I... Let me go look at it real quick and see. Uh, where is it? Yeah, Real Talk, David Cash. Just search for that. And uh, and you'll find my stuff. Okay, well, this has been good for for now. Um, like I said, you, you guys probably won't hear from me for a while. But then again, you might. It just depends on, I don't know, is it the Fed? Is it international investors? But can my, need, my energy needs be met? Can, my, can I get a little health care plan that's not going to have me sleeping all the time I don't know but that's pretty much what's the issue and uh, and, I, and I hope you would like to hear more from me and if so then I don't know I don't know who to, who to tell you to call or I don't have uh, I don't have names and numbers for a lot of people but if I did, I would, I would email them, I would call them, and I would ask for their support. But for for now, I'm just, I'm I'm pretty much just gonna. I don't I don't want my dad pressuring me either to go work somewhere because, you know, I've already invested several times, and every time, they're basically short selling my my existing investment and my existing valuation fraudulent fraud using fraud and using trickery and sub subterfuge and if people are going to do that then maybe I should just wait wait for a while till things calm down a little bit better and then then go re-enter these markets and also maybe a reorganization a restructuring of these local you know unified groups could be could be made that would better reflect uh that would interact with me better because i'm not sure these are you know it's hard to say it would be it's difficult for me to say these are free markets and these are legitimate businesses but maybe I'll be proven wrong um, I'm not really sure but you know I'm sure enough new jobs Connecticut's governor Ned Lamont joins us now governor always good to have you uh, as we have throughout the pandemic you know before we get to that program let me just ask you where do you think we are given we've certainly seen the tougher times with you and you've come on our air and discussed that are we at or very close to the end okay my t- Another thing my dad did is one time he tried to, he had this place in Connecticut he wanted me to go, and I I ended up not going, but I don't know where this is going, and they got the governor from Connecticut on right now, but I'm going to change the channel and see what's on Bloomberg. And for their machinery, because of the shortage of semiconductors, and just to go back to what I was talking about with Deere, 
all of this equipment is becoming so much smarter, so much more connected, mm. and that does leave these companies much more dependent on semiconductors than they've ever been before. Such a good point. Um, and, and also, to, to Guy's point, warehouses, ports, truck labor, labor, one of the biggest constraints uh, on supply issues. Um, have we learned anything about them having to raise wages as well, like on the other side uh, of the ledger here? Uh, I don't know about that specifically for gear, but I know, you know, sort of across the industrial sector, I've heard that from more and more manufacturers that they're having to offer more money to get the people that they want. Um, but if they do offer higher salaries, they're not having as hard of a time finding people. Um, you know, talking to, to people at uh, Rockwell Automation, you know, they, they have offered more money, but they're getting the people that they need or train technologies, which, you know, has really made an effort to invest in living wages. They're also getting the people that they need. And so I think that does raise some questions of, are we actually seeing a labor shortage, or is it, you know, somewhat of an issue of these companies not being willing to, to offer what they need to to attract talent, especially in a hyper-competitive environment like we're going to see as the economy snaps back from the pandemic. Glenn, get back to the call. Thanks very much indeed for stopping by and kind of sharing what we've learned so far. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Brooke Sutherland on what is happening with there. Alex, A, I like the idea of a smart tractor mm -hmm. that in some way really appeals to me. And apparently the issues, like the real demand is for big tractors. They're really sold out on big tractors. And Deere makes them absolutely enormous ones. Uh, yeah, but I do think, you know, the idea of how sticky all this is going to be, this is definitely an interesting space to watch uh, in terms of if they do have to wind up passing on higher wages, you're not going to just take that down all of a sudden. Uh, and also, if the, it, the input cost that they see rising, is there a cap to it? Like, at the point does it get fixed? How fast? That's a little transitory uh, issue. But what I do yep. think is interesting is that re these headlines have a different meaning now after the minutes, to be honest with you, than before, if we'd gotten these kind of headlines before. Those, those are small tractors. We're showing that. I think that's a small tractor. They make some we need to get you here to go to like a big farm show. Oh, that would be fantastic. It's so fun. And um, we can get you like fried butter and fried Oreos, fried Twinkies, fried pickles. I'm, de I'm detecting a theme here. None of that sounds particularly nice. No, but, that's okay. not the point. It's just so awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and so healthy as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think the, the point that, that um, Brooke made right at the beginning. They have pricing power. And yeah. People need this kit right now. They're willing to upgrade. Ag prices are relatively high. Demand is strong. You look at what's happening with China. We're seeing prices for grains going up. You see prices across the ag space going up. And people are investing in kits. And I think that investment in, in sort of the farming infrastructure, farming getting more efficient, goes also back to the, to the ESG narrative. And you look at what is happening mm -hmm. with Deere potentially as an ESG company. I, if, you can, if you can farm more effectively, if the, if the kit is smarter, you need less inputs. And, and inputs here are, are water and soil and fertilizer, like big stuff that we all kind of are starting to feel a little bit restricted on. So it's going to be interesting to see about how you think about Deere going forward. Um, talking of big stuff, big companies, mega companies, Alex, well, they're getting bigger and they're benefiting. Uh, we're going to look at what's happening here, how these big companies and how they benefited from the pandemic in so many ways are shaping the global economy. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
Get $20 off your first home project at Angie.com today. Make your home an Angie home. Angie and done. Bloomberg has enhanced search on the terminal to deliver what you need when you need it. Now, you can simply type phrases in everyday English in the command line. Compare financials. Find people. Analyze markets. You can enter phrases or ask questions. What do you want to know today? Ask a question or visit SearchGo to find answers now. Tune in to today's Options Insight, sponsored by Think or Swim, by TD Ameritrade. The world's biggest companies are cashed up and thriving. Last year, the top 50 raked in nearly $800 billion in profits. That's equivalent to almost 1% of global GDP. Let's break down the trends. 30 years ago, there were no Chinese firms in that group. Now, there are eight, and tech titans are on the rise. From three companies then, to 21 now. Mega firms are changing the look of the economy. They are hiring fewer workers, more likely to add capacity in the cloud than build a new factory, Okay, I don't know where this is going, but um, you have heard pretty much everything, and um, you know, I think when people were seeing that I was, I was just making full-length shows recorded where I was working, you know, that kind of took us off track, but. It was, I did what I had to do to, to keep, keep everything going, but, um, I'm hoping we can, I can find an easier way forward, because I feel like the real, the real investments and the real money is being made when I'm here at my home slash studio, um, being able to be on the internet all the time and releasing podcasts and everything. Which is just as good as a radio show. Radio radio is built up to be a big deal. But you know, I have... I mean, I have uh, sponsors too, in a way. So, it's just an emerging market, pretty much. So, search for David McCullough Cash, D-A-V-I-D-M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H-C-A-S-H. On, um... On Google and DuckDuckGo. And Bing and Baidu, the Chinese search engine, B-A-I-D-U. Just search for the name, just search for my name and find my stuff. And then maybe you'll agree with me. And maybe you won't. So, so I guess, um... So yeah, you may not hear much from me for a while, unless I can get this, I can figure out a, a better way that I've been promoting and that has been sold to me is, I don't know, this sounds crazy, just never mind. The point is, is that I'll try, I'll, I'll do my best, you know, and I don't know what's going to happen, but... I'm not comfortable just going back out there immediately and and wasting my time and being being smeared in the process. So I don't know. We'll see.